When you go to Philadelphia and visit Independence Hall, the brick building with the white steeple clock tower that was once called the Pennsylvania State House, you will be directed by the helpful folks at the National Park Service to wait in line so that you can see the room where the delegates at those little wooden chairs and green tables debated the question of independence on July 4th. Now, we know better than that, don't we? July 2nd and arguments July 1st, where arguments were made and the decision was finally reached. And as you queue up, you will be led through a lawn around the building and you will no doubt wonder, when will this darn tour start? What you may not be aware is that, in a sense, your tour has already begun, though no one will probably tell you at that time, because right there in that waiting area, in that lawn, right there in the State House yard, behind Independence Hall, is where a lot of the history happened, where some important events, maybe the most important event, happened that led to independence. But we start with a very dark time for the cause, a time when the state of Pennsylvania voted right there in the Independence Hall building in an election that had become a referendum on American independence on May 1st, 1776. And the voters of Pennsylvania were clear. They rejected independence. Assembly candidates who would continue the state's policy of an attempt at reconciliation with the mother nation of Britain would prevail in that election. What's shocking about this vote is that it occurred just two months and three days before July 4th. We look now at the events that led to the state from bucking the continental trend and continuing to seek peace with a king that didn't seem interested in reciprocating to one of the keystone states of independence. And we'll look at the signers and more than a few non-signers who made that result happen. And we'll look at a beverage that may have helped found a nation, the syrupy, bitter drink, that allowed the consumer not to compromise their principles while they got their little caffeine buzz. Coffee. Samuel Adams had fled Lexington along with John Hancock when the British attempted to arrest him. Some considered him a hero, but others, especially the Quakers who did not approve of the independence movement in Philadelphia, considered him a Machiavelli of chaos, among other things. He did not reduce his activity once he changed his locale. He began meeting in various coffee houses with other radicals who were convinced they could turn around the events that were occurring in this middle colony. They would meet at the London Coffee House on Chestnut and Walnut, or the Indian King, or the Lock, Jack, and Ball, the Exchange Coffee House, or the James Coffee House. But more often, they would simply meet in the pharmacy store of Christopher Marshall, a radical who wanted independence, but also the right to vote for all, not just the property. His sons ran the business, and perhaps looked at their father as whittling away time while he ran politics. Marshall and his sons would end up supplying the Continental Army with the badly needed drugs of those times, magnesia, tartar emetic, sodium sulfate, known as globber's salt. And there, after several cups of their own drug, the burnt coffee, it would have tasted burnt to us, but not to them, Samuel Adams and his cohorts plotted the next move. Thomas Young, the country doctor and radical James Cannon, the teacher. Timothy Matlock, a radical Quaker who was thrown out of the Friends for gambling. Despite his religion, Matlock had no problem wearing a sword in the streets of Philadelphia. These radicals had an advantage, too. They had a connection with some of the more high-society folks who also favored independence, especially the signer Thomas McCain, who would run the city committee government, and Francis Hopkins, the musician and patriot. 
In the pharmacy, they talked politics, the ways and means. They knew the people in Philadelphia, the artisans and mechanics who mostly supported independence. The German vote they knew was with them, the Scotch-Irish. Today, it's common for us to talk politics and say, well, the Hispanic vote will do this, that vote will do that. In the complicated politics of the colony, it was very similar. Samuel Adams, now living in the dock house with his cousin John, fumed at the election results May 1st in this keystone state to the colonies. Samuel Adams was a radical, but he was also pragmatic. One of the things he liked to say was, you can't control events. And as we'll discuss, the history of all these events are difficult to really know. John Adams in 1815, writing both to his new pen pal, Thomas Jefferson, and the fellow signer, Thomas McKean, bemoaned a new Italian book that had come out in 1815, years after the Revolution, called The American War, which purported to tell the story of the American Revolution, including all the speeches in Congress and the events in Philadelphia. Adams was shocked. Who shall write the history of the American Revolution? He wrote them. Who shall be able to write it? The deliberations were in secret and now lost forever. McCain agreed. He replied that this Italian author was a vain and presuming character to have attempted to write it. So did Jefferson. Jefferson replied to Adams, Who will be able to write such a history? Nobody. Still, we know some of the events that occurred, and especially that between May 1st, when the anti-independence prevailed in Pennsylvania, and July 2nd, when Pennsylvania, along with the rest of the nation, declared independence from Britain, something changed. Let's start here. In the last cast, we discussed how Benjamin Franklin became a political boss. And he did this by a combination of things. Solving that riddle of the Sphinx in the Pennsylvania colony that was plaguing the community. How to have a militia, but still hold to their pacifist principles. He solved it and became a popular politician because of it. And he was also against the government of that proprietor that the people hated, the Pens. Also, he controlled a lot of the popular presses in town. So, for a good ten years, along with Joseph Galloway, his popular party basically ran Pennsylvania. He did not get on the assembly without his support. One of the people who got his support initially was Merchant John Dickinson. Yet, by 1765, something had changed with Dickinson. Franklin decided it was time to finally take on the Penn family and remove the Penn family from Pennsylvania. To take on Pennsylvania's status as a proprietary colony owned by the Penn family. He would appeal for Pennsylvania to be ruled not by a charter with the king, but by the king directly. This was a radical change. Absolutely not, answered Dickinson. To be ruled by a king? If the numerous trespasses the royal government had inflicted against the colonies, Pennsylvania among them, now to be ruled by a king, it was too much and he would turn against Galloway and Franklin and run his own slate of candidates for the assembly against this idea of a royal colony, a Pennsylvania controlled directly by the king. After a summer, in 1764, a full pamphlet war on the streets of the city, Dickinson's people handing out handbills, Franklin's people handing out handbills. The people supported Dickinson. He prevailed, and he became now the party boss of Pennsylvania, running the assembly with his own slate of candidates. This seems strange to us who know a little bit about this history. Dickinson, fighting against a rule by the king, acting as the patriot, Ben Franklin, 
fighting to have his adopted home, his city of Philadelphia, controlled by King George? Didn't we always hear that Dickinson was the man who refused to sign? That he didn't want independence? What about that musical 1776, Dickinson the villain, Franklin the hero? Yes, it sounds strange, but this is indeed the history. It would be years later before Ben Franklin would make his return appearance. Now, as a fire-breathing patriot, years later than this squabble with Dickinson. At this time, Dickinson wanted the charter to remain, home rule by an assembly of Pennsylvania, and Franklin was willing to deal with royal control in order to oust his rival, the Pens. Now, back to your visit to Pennsylvania, which should include a look at the impressive Independence Hall's clock tower, and a stroll northeast to the Carpenter's Hall. The Carpenter's Hall, the meeting house of rich artisans who designed so many city buildings and also took an active hand in the city, was the initial meeting place of the Continental Congress. Carpenter's Hall is a lovely building, but the reason that the priority of everyone's tour to Philadelphia is seeing Independence Hall has a lot to do with John Dickinson. After all, even though he did not support independence, he is the one who invited the Continental Congress to leave the Carpenter's Hall and come use the more prestigious State House of Pennsylvania. No problem, because my assembly is meeting upstairs. You can use the downstairs room. And so they did, with Dickinson as a member. But as the Continental Congress set about its business over the months, it began to lean more and more towards those Massachusetts radicals, towards severing ties with Britain. Things had changed. Dickinson was still a fighter against the abuses of the king. He was the author of Letters of a Pennsylvania Farmer, which in 1768 had made him famous around the colonies. He said the following, If at length it becomes undoubted that an inverterate resolution is formed to annihilate the liberties of the governed, the English history affords frequent examples of resistance by force. Dickinson had also been an author of the Declaration of Arms, where the Continental Congress committed itself to resistance against the abuses of the king. But now in 1776, as British armies fired on citizens in Massachusetts and they fought back, as a large armada formed in Halifax to sweep the resistance, as even a few British raiders came up the Delaware, Dickinson didn't think the time was right for a full war. He wanted reconciliation. There may be a time for independence, but it was not yet. His supporter, John Morton, and James Wilson, signers of the Declaration, sided with him initially. For this, he incurred much criticism. Folly, that superlative and wise great patriot Dickinson, Sam Adams, sarcastically wrote to his friend James Warren in Boston, who from 1774 to 1776 did everything he could to urge accommodation. He has poisoned the minds of the people. John Adams had harsher terms. Even 20 years later, though he had a good heart, he cherished the monarchy and was henpecked by the women in his life. William Hooper kind of shared this psychological analysis. He was, Hooper said, betrayed by nerves. Hooper and the Adamses were more in line with where popular opinion was in the masses of the people. In January of the year 1776, a pamphlet started to appear in Philadelphia bookstands. It was called Common Sense, and it offered just that logical explanation for the position of independence, making it seem so simple. It read, There is something exceedingly ridiculous in the composition of monarchy. It first excludes a man from the means of information, yet empowers him to act in cases where the highest judgment is required. The state of a king shuts him from the world, yet the business of a king requires him to know it thoroughly. It also used common speak, language, 
that could appeal to the masses. One of the strongest natural proofs of the folly of hereditary right in kings is that nature disapproves it. Otherwise, she would not so frequently turn it to ridicule by giving mankind an ass for a lion. It was full of this kind of tavern talk, logical arguments mixed with quick statements, the way someone would talk to their neighbors in a tavern. It is absurd for a continent to be ruled by an island. Authored by an Englishman, its author was Thomas Paine, who indeed had come to Philadelphia from England with a recommendation letter from Franklin in his hand, and after long public discussions in bookhouses in Philadelphia, was tapped to edit a local newspaper, and then to author the broadside that would turn out to be a runaway bestseller and the siren for independence. The book then reinforced those who had doubts about the idea of independence. Well, you wouldn't hear any tavern talk out of James Wilson, a signer of the Declaration of Independence who would end up supporting it at the time of Common Sense's publication would not be found saying some of the things in that document. James Wilson was a protege of John Dickinson, and Dickinson was an influence on him. He was a young up-and-comer in his 30s, the time of the events that we described. He's a talented Scot. A lot of people in the upper echelon of Philadelphia society had a lot of good things to say about him, even if the masses felt him to be a snob. He came to America with a good recommendation, studied law under John Dickinson, learned it well, and began to get a stable of good businessmen as clients. His clients trended conservative, and thus, while acknowledging the abuses of England, were for reconciliation. To build his practice, Wilson also moved out to the western part of the state, at least at that time, to Carlisle, Pennsylvania. But the west was more anti-British, more radical. He joined a militia company. This signer reflected the conflicts in his state. Indeed, in a convention in Carlisle, Wilson was celebrated when he read his speech attacking the abuses of England. His mind, Benjamin Rush had said about him when he spoke, was a blaze of light. In the musical 1776, James Wilson is presented as the puppet of Dickinson who speaks only when John does. Like much of that musical, it's entertaining, the music is great, the dancing is fine, the jokes are funny, but it's not always accurate. As Adams had indicated, the agreement of McCain and Jefferson what was said in Congress stayed in Congress, so we don't really know all the discussions. Yet we do know that Wilson leaned towards reconciliation. He remained a classic swing vote, influenced by his mentor, his clients, what he felt was right, what he felt was prudent, and a little bit of politics, too. As members of the Continental Congress debated independence or delay, Jefferson inked notes on a piece of paper. It was not complete notes. There really wouldn't be complete notes of the sessions. He didn't identify speakers in his notes, just arguments. By the end of it, he said he had about five pages of arguments pro and con about independence and the motion of Richard Henry Lee. These were the arguments. It was argued by Wilson, Robert R. Livingston, Edward Rutledge, and John Dickinson and others, he said, that though they were friends to the measures themselves and saw the impossibility that we should ever be united with Great Britain, they were against adopting them at this time. The conduct we had formerly observed was wise and proper now, deferring to take any capital step till the voice of the people drove it to us. France and Spain, they argued, had reason to be jealous of that rising power, America, which one day would certainly strip them of all their possessions. The people of the middle colonies, Maryland, Delaware, the Jerseys, and New York, were not yet ripe for bidding adieu to British connection. They were fast ripening, though, and in a short time would join the general voice if we would just wait. Some of them had expressly forbidden their delegates to consent to such a declaration. 
Others had given no instructions, and consequently, no powers to consent to independence. On the other side, it was urged by John Adams, Lee, Wythe, and others, that the question was not whether, by a declaration of independence, we should make ourselves what we are not, but whether we should declare a fact that already exists. James II never declared the people of England out of his protection, yet his actions proved, and the Parliament declared it, that the people now wait for us, the Congress, to lead the way, and we must do it. Those were the arguments of both sides, according to Jefferson's notes, and so Jefferson said, It appearing in the course of these debates that the colonies of New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, and South Carolina were not yet matured for falling from the parent stem, but that they were fast advancing to the state, it was thought most prudent to wait a while for them and to postpone the final decision to July 1st. James Wilson had a key role in this delay vote. And here's where a lack of a true history of everything stops us from understanding what James Wilson's real role was. It's a bit ambiguous. We do know that voting on the actual Declaration of Independence was delayed until Wilson could get the Pennsylvania legislature to change the instructions, which had forbidden its delegates, including Wilson, to vote for independence. But the militia groups and the Philadelphia radicals didn't like all these delaying tactics. They would find a way to throw the stallers out of the body if they did not represent the people. And so Wilson did something else. He said to some of the more radical members of the Continental Congress, listen, vote for this delay. And also, could you please author a document saying that all this time I had supported independence? Jefferson, Samuel Adams, and others ended up signing a document in which they explained that Wilson was indeed a true supporter and always argued for independence in the chamber. Sam Adams knew it was not exactly true, but was happy to do it to secure a favor and most likely after the delay period, which would expose Wilson to the opinion of the people, they'd get another independence vote. Things get real interesting and fall to the events that Sam Adams talked about. Some of them happened inside the chamber, some of them happened outside. In history, we just learn about the inside events. We learn about things that happened at those green tables, but there was debate And there was discussion inside and out, talk in the streets of Philadelphia. Word comes of 16,000 Hessians and Highlander Scots that the king has hired to come and crush the colonist resistance. A king using foreign troops against his own people. News of the British Armada hurling towards New York. And they need not wait for that. Already a ship, the HMS Roebuck, and the Liverpool sails up the Delaware. It is forcefully opposed by militia in the town, and cannoneers fight the ships off and force them to leave. There are many convincing talks in the State House yard as the Congress is out of session, or at Franklin's garden home. And there's politics. The Philadelphia City Committee, taken over by radicals, supports the independent movement, threatens that they will call a convention of the people to replace Dickinson's assembly, which is opposing independence. Thomas Paine writes. Another broadside, the alarm, which appears in German as well as der alarm, and argues the assembly cannot debate the question of independence and give instructions to the Congress. Because, to use modern verbiage, it's a conflict of interest. It can be done to them, but it can't be done by them. Only the people can decide on their future in regards to the royal government. A weekend of canvassing follows, and finally, as the assembly, who was elected in that election of May 1st, Pennsylvania voters had voted anti-independence assemblymen on May 20th, as the assembly is supposed to meet at the State House yard. 
Yes, in that yard that you wait to get your tour of the building, where you may have thought all the action happened inside. A mass meeting of 4,000 people was held outside, shouting, demanding a new government for Pennsylvania and the election of new assembly members. And they begin a series of resolutions to call for a convention, to call for new assembly members, to replace the ones controlled by Dickinson. They elect new members. Some of them go right upstairs and try to sit in their seats and ask for a provincial convention to run the state. They also prevent, by their mass numbers, the assembly from meeting. And lacking a quorum of the body that he once controlled, Dickinson is having some trouble running the state. And this is where the story of the Declaration is also a military story. Five battalions of Pennsylvania militia muster on the Philadelphia Common. This is 2,000 men in their uniforms. And they are asked by their captains, What say ye? Will you take orders from Dickinson's assembly? Or will you take orders from the new people's body, the convention that's about to form? Dickinson is a militia captain. And he, like the others, must sit through this. His own men vote against him in his presence. And they vote to form a military union with the other colonies and to follow the provincial government, not Dickinson's assembly. So by July 1st, when the actual debate is held, Pennsylvania's politics have changed greatly. Dickinson's still in the Congress, but he's about to get thrown out. The Assembly still has instructions for the Pennsylvanians to vote against independence, but they are about to lose all their power, and new pro-independence Assemblymen will be elected who will change those instructions. Yet that July 1st delegation in Pennsylvania is still opposed to independence. Thomas Willing, a merchant. Charles Humphrey, dedicated Quaker, known to be no votes. Dickinson, of course, is, is against independence at this time. Robert Morris, also opposed to independence at this time. Franklin is a supporter. James Wilson is now, because of logic, politics, throw that classic mixture of both, a solid yay vote. And John Morton, though he's also a previous Dickinsonite, moves into the yay column as well. So, despite that all you hear about James Wilson and John Morton being these swing votes that changed their mind and brought us independence, we should note some simple math. The largest colony sent seven men to Congress, so this should be a vote for three, a majority of no on independence, and Pennsylvania, the middle colony, should break the unity of the colonies. An absolute disaster. History is different. This revolution goes the way of the one in the Netherlands and the colonies are split apart. But instead of that, something different happens. There is not a 4-3 majority, no. But Dickinson, Morris, Willing, Humphrey, they don't change their votes. Instead, John Dickinson and Robert Morris simply stay home. They didn't want to vote for independence, but they also decided not to be the obstacle to it. They made themselves absent. And they knew full well what they were doing. Robert Morris would end up signing. Dickinson would refuse and would soon resign Congress. Yet by simply not voting, both of them allowed a 3-2 vote to happen. Thus, there were four swing votes in the Pennsylvania Convention, not just James Wilson, not just John Morton, but Morris and Dickinson to an extent as well. All played a role. It was thought that Delaware might oppose, but with Caesar Rodney's ride, the Delaware de delegation votes, and all colonies on July 2nd vote for independence. And the President of the United Colonies becomes the President of the United States, in Congress assembled, of course. John Hancock says, 
Gentlemen, we have done the impossible. We have freed the colonies from British rule. We have set America on a new course. And on July 4th, the ringing of a bell as John Nixon, the sheriff of Philadelphia, reads the declaration to a crowd that had assembled once again in that state house yard, showing the popular support for the actions of the people in the chamber inside. By the way, Sheriff Nixon, the question, of course, you have, well, is he, you know, related to... No, there's no direct lineage we can find to Richard Nixon, though the 37th president did have a number of distant relatives in Pennsylvania. Missouri Governor Jay Nixon does claim lineage to this old sheriff. It's a common name, just means son of Nicholas. can also be spelled with a CK. Back to James Wilson. It could be said that though he was influential, and though he switched his vote to independence, James Wilson was never the most popular man in Pennsylvania. Some people never forgave him for the stance that he took. On good government grounds, he opposed the new radical constitution for the province of Pennsylvania. He felt its unicameral legislature was too powerful. The executive, the president of Pennsylvania, was too weak. There was no separation of power. Because of his opposition, the leaders of the state government removed Wilson from Congress and relieved him of his militia commission. He moved to Annapolis, Maryland, and even that move intensified the scandal, since he was now charged with abandoning the state during the Revolution. In 1779, after he moved back to Pennsylvania, a mob actually attacked his house. After the Constitution of Pennsylvania was founded, there was a Constitutionalist party. Charles Wilson Peel, famous artist was the leader of that group. But he started to lose control of it. And a mob arose that would rid the country of its anti-American elements. They decided that James Wilson would be a target. Recently, he had defended in court people accused of price gouging during the revolution. The mob tried to convince Peel to join. Peel doesn't like Wilson, but also didn't like the idea of torching his house. He left and seriously afraid of what he had started. Peel ran off to get the governor and hopefully the Pennsylvania light horse to stop this. While he's running, the mob moves to arm itself and advance on Wilson's house. Wilson gets word, and some 20 of his friends now arm himself and begin to drill in front of the house. As the mob approaches, they aren't intimidated by the drilling, and the friends move inside, take their positions. When they reach James Wilson's house, Captain Campbell, an invalid officer from the regulars of the Continental Army, appears at a second-story window with his pistol. Campbell orders the mob to move on. He is shot dead. There is gunfire on both sides. Four of the mob are killed. Now they bring up a mortar. They break down Wilson's doors and bayonet one of Wilson's defenders inside. They shoot the weapon out of another defender's hands. But Wilson's friends succeed in forcing the mob at least out of the door and barricade it with desks and chairs. More mortars are brought forward. This would be a sad story for one of the signers of the Declaration. But fortunately, at this time as the battle is ensuing, the governor, his boots unlaced apparently, arrives with the Pennsylvania Light Horse in time to drive off this mob. Charles Wilson Peel later said that the governor had been later, every single person inside the Wilson home would have been killed. The governor's arrival causes most of the mob to flee. Wilson flees the city and hides in an attic on Robert Morris's farm outside the city, where Robert Morris himself would later have to hide. Thereafter, the citizens of Philadelphia called his house Fort Wilson. His biographer, L. Carroll Judson, wrote of Wilson, One of the freaks of human nature is that of inconsistency. One of its most odious features is persecution, prompted by jealousy and promulgated by slander and falsehood. 
Great and good men are often the victims of unprincipled and designing partisans. No one suffered more from this source than James Wilson. Indeed, he would always face a lot of partisan criticism, which prevented him from becoming Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, though he did serve as a justice. And because of his bankruptcy due to land speculation, he spent time in debtor's prison and ended his life penniless and disgraced, never earning his due as a founding father. But if anyone is a founding father, it is Wilson. Yet unpopular as he was, he would go on to have a key role in the forming of another important document. Benjamin Franklin, Robert Morris, George Clymer were also signers of the Declaration from Pennsylvania who would join him in that constitutional convention. But Wilson was part of the Committee of Detail who really shaped some of the final language. Though he advocated for a popular vote for the presidency, did not get it. We still don't have it today. Many of his ideas did get reflected in the Constitution, as he said about it. I will confess, indeed, that I am not a blind admirer of this plan of government, and that there are some parts of it which, if my wish had prevailed, would certainly have been altered. But when I reflect how widely men differ in their opinions, and that every man in the observation appears likewise to every state, I am satisfied that anything nearer to perfection could not have been accomplished. It is the best form of government which has ever been offered to the world. Another man who is more of a founder than sometimes gets credit for is John Dickinson. He is, of course, a non-signer, so he's not one of the people that we're supposed to be talking about in this podcast. But I will. He refused to sign the Declaration, and since a proposal had been brought forth that said that it, for our mutual security and protection, no man could remain in Congress without signing, Dickinson left the Congress. But he was no loyalist. He immediately, after he left Congress, joined the Pennsylvania militia, supported the war effort. He led 10,000 soldiers to Elizabeth, New Jersey, to protect the area against British attack from Staten Island. He rejoined the Congress in 1779, signed the Articles of Confederation, and in August of 1781, he met the same fate as so many people who had signed the Declaration. His house, Poplar Hall, had been severely damaged by loyalists in a raid. Dickinson was elected president of Pennsylvania, 1782, and when there was a protest of Pennsylvania veterans who marched on the Continental Congress, demanding their pay before being discharged from the army, Congress asked John Dickinson, as president of Pennsylvania, to bring out the militia against them. Dickinson refused. Dickinson, like Wilson, was a member of the Constitutional Convention and would have a role in shaping that. Jefferson wrote when he was president and learned of Dickinson's death, a more esteemable man or truer patriot could not have left us. Benjamin Rush said he was opposed to the Declaration at the time it took place, but commenced in supporting it. Even Adams, who retained an annoyance with his stances all through his life, said that Dickinson was the first among equals. Though not a signer, Dickinson deserves his place in history. To celebrate the 50-year anniversary of William Penn's charter in 1751, a 2,080-pound metal bell was ordered from an English foundry. It was not an example of good craftsmanship. The bell never quite held together. During testing, it cracked and had to be recast. Once delivered to the Pennsylvania colony, It was placed in the south tower of what was then the courthouse. On July 4th, 1776, the bell was rung in order to announce independence in the city of Philadelphia. The bell would be rung again in 1783 after the Treaty of Paris was signed. The Revolutionary War was officially won. And then in 1835, 
when Supreme Court Justice John Marshall died. This, at least the story goes, is when the bell cracked. Pennsylvania has a special place in our hearts and minds because it was the location of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And it's still the place we can go to visit today to remember the signing and, of course, to see the Liberty Bell. In addition to Boston, it is one of the few places in America where one can still get a sense of what life was like at the time that these men lived. I want to thank you for listening. They signed the signers of the Declaration of Independence. We are reaching uh, the point at which we've talked about almost all of them. Still a few more to go. I want to thank you for listening. Of course, if you like the program, you could certainly use a review on iTunes. And I have another podcast, MyHistoryCanBeatUpYourPolitics.com, www.MyHistoryCanBeatUpYourPolitics.com, uh, which you might enjoy, and I do update that frequently. Thanks for listening.